You're listening to Reporters and Reported, a podcast from Cardiff University's School of Journalism, Media and Culture. This week, me, Joe Pugh and Toby Howell will be talking to Professor Akhil Ahmed. Professor, thank you so much for joining us today. What key skills do you think are needed if you want to pursue a career in the news industry today? Well, the key one, obviously, is being able to write. Uh, being able to communicate with people, uh, uh, having actually, I think, having real resilience as well, uh, and being being very thorough and uh, and on time, all those kind of key things. But basically, well, ultimately, you what you have to be is somebody who's interested in what people have to say, and actually a very good listener. And then wrapping all of that up together, you should be able to do this job fantastically. And could you tell us what advice would you give to someone starting out in the industry? best advice that it never goes away whatever stage you're at is to actually think about where would you like to be in three years time five years time and to do a pros and cons kind of column in regards to what skills you have that 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 you think will help you get there what skills you don't have and actually then to work on that because one of the things that I always worry about with many people who come to me years later and say I feel pigeonholed and you say and you look at the CV and you go you should have got out of that a bit earlier. And and I'm the same, you know, I've done two, I did, I've been a head of religion at two different broadcasters, probably one too many, you know, and uh, and, it, and it can and it can impact on what people think about you. So I would always say to people at the early stage of their career, think about where you want to be and then ask are the things that you're doing and the skills that you have and the skills that you need or the things that are within you that block you from getting that kind of role, how are you going to navigate them? Because if you don't, you won't get to where you want to be. So you were heavily involved in the reporting of Princess Diana's funeral. How do you feel that social media would change the way that that was reported today? That's a very good question, actually. I mean, uh, I, I was we were involved in it by accident because it simply worked in news and current affairs, um, and 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 how we did it. I mean, social media then wasn't around, as you know. So effectively, we had to do real hard work. So basically, what I did on the day of the funeral was, I, I remember I was working from um, one of the last hospitals that I think Prince Steiner opened in, if memory serves me correctly, Preston. Um, and I had to, we had to go and find people, and we had to get them there. Now, it would have been a lot easier in terms of social media for us to do our job, because it would have just been, the stories would have been in front of us rather than having to do basic research, you know. But in terms of... What we now know about social media as well is that actually, if you think about it, that was probably the first social media before social media kind of event because I remember being woken up by my boss at some ridiculous hour to tell me to get into the office because Prince Steiner was, was dead and or was about to die or whatever. And, and I remember thinking, I'd turn the TV on and say, ah, there's nothing on the TV. And then there was that moment where he said, yeah, we're going to put it on the TV. <laughs> uh, it was like, good point, yeah. So, um, so I remember going in to do that. Now that would have been all over, and we wouldn't be able to hide it or or work and get things sorted. We would have would have been reacting to things as they happened, and I think that's what the change has been. People are uh, people now would have been doing their own thing, and they wouldn't have needed to wait for the BBC or or ITV, whoever it is, to tell them the story. They would have told the story themselves, and. I bet in those first few hours it would have been chaos. All it was early in the hour, it was early hours of Sunday morning. If mem- again, I think it was early hours of Sunday morning. They may not have been around, but it would have just cracked in. And then in that week between the death and the funeral itself, then there would have been so much going on, so many stories. If you can imagine the uh, Buckingham Palace, that that kind of like river of of flowers that they had. Can you imagine what that would have been like had it been in a social media era? That would have just been the image that you would have seen everywhere. People would have been telling their stories. You would have had all of that. And don't think, ultimately, it would have changed the reporting. 
because that would have been what individuals did. The reporting would still have been the same, but actually it may have been social media might have been part of the story, but it wouldn't have changed the reporting, in my opinion. And sticking with social media, how do we as reporters now best communicate with audiences who particularly younger audiences who are said to have a lack of an attention span. How do we best communicate complex stories in particular? Well, again, it, it depends on who your audience is. So I think we, can't, we cannot presume that everybody is the same. So whether you're on television, newspaper, radio, social media, on you name it, every audience is specific to the platform that you're, ch- and, uh, that you're on and the audience that you're chasing. So in that sense, actually, there will be people who will react to something that's a little bit longer. Uh, but what you've got to do is actually engage them and get them straight away. And so some, you can't build up to it. So there's all that kind of, there's, there's lots of kind of like tricks of the trade. So if you're going to do something on social media, you've got to get in there straight away. And then actually you may finish it a lot earlier than you would normally finish it. You can't wait to the end. So you have to think about how you make something work. And, and I watched something recently. Um, so on social media, it was like a three minute clip of. Uh, it was by uh, a DJ from the Asian network who was going in search of his father that he'd never seen. And I saw this free little, I saw this three minute thing that was sent to me by BBC Three uh, on, on, on Twitter because I followed him. And I thought, oh, that's really good. Uh, and then I found, and then it said, you know, but it's part of a, it's a 50 minute documentary. So I then got on to the BBC iPlayer and I watched the 50 minute documentary. Now, I know lots of, many people won't watch the 50 minute documentary. They'll probably just watch the three minute document, three minute piece. That's how you get them. You think about who is this relevant to? Can I tell this story in three minutes? Can I tell it in 50 minutes? Can I tell it in 30 seconds? You think about your audience. And there will be some things that I've been, when I've been working in digital media, there are some things that we do in 30 seconds. And there are some things that we can do in three or four minutes. And what we've found is there's a real thirst for kind of like historical knowledge as well, history with certain audiences. And they will take three or four minutes. You talked in your speech very eloquently actually about the fact that you fell into religion by accident and as you said earlier on you were the commissioning editor of religion at channel four you were also the head of commissioning and religious uh, ethics at bbc Uh, and you also talked also about the rise of far-right voices what is your opinion on the portrayal of islam right now in the current british media well, I think it's different in different places. And it goes back to that bigger point we always talk about. There are different platforms, different areas. I think in newspapers, I think we are living in a very dangerous time because I think about the regulation in newspapers enables things to, enables some of the stories that we've seen have been quite shocking. And I do believe that we need to ask ourselves and some of the newspapers themselves need to ask themselves a serious question, which is, yes, I understand that your readers are of a certain persuasion, uh, particularly from the centre to right, uh, I understand all of that. But at the same time, you know, what do you want the outcome of your pr- output to be? If you're going to have so much, so much negativity, what do you want the output to be? And the interesting thing is we've just done a survey. And one of the questions was we, we, we asked the Great British Public, so it was 2,000 people were surveyed, you know, by comrades. And, one, and you know, but roughly around about half of those people said that they think the media is to blame for the rise of Islamophobia. That's quite high. That's not Muslims, by the way. That's non-Muslims. Now, I think that it's not only the media's fault. There's obviously far-right voices and far-right parties and the, uh, the economy, the banking collapse, all these kind of things fall in, break, you name it. But I do believe, and, and Muslims themselves, terrorism and all sorts of other things, but I think these are, this is the beginning of something that we can't dismiss now, which is when, gen, when the general public thinks that there's an issue, 
not just Muslims, then maybe we have gone too far. Because I think a lot of people, it's interesting, in that survey, a lot of them don't want a mosque anywhere near them, but a vast majority of them have got zero problem with a Muslim living next door. So what do they have a problem with? The institutions and the concept, but not with the individual. And that's because they meet the individual, they know the individual, but they don't know the institution. The institution is something that is, you know, wrong, bad. The faith is bad. This is bad. Oh, the, uh, the individual is all right. And so if you put that in with the, even with the final point I'd make, which is the Muslim population is about 5% in Britain. We asked the question, you know, what do you think the percentage is? Over 37% of people in surveyed thought it was 20% or more. And I have to say, we're citing Cardiff today, you know, the worst geographical lo uh, location was was Wales. And 47% of people, or was it 46 or maybe 46%, thought that it was 20% or above, as opposed to what it really is, which is 5%. Now, where does that come from? It comes from the media's obsession. So I do think the media has a role to play in what we're seeing with the with the perception of Muslims and Islam in Britain. Thank you very much for joining us, Professor Akil. It's been a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you.